Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This episode of The Hash is sponsored by CypherTrace, a MasterCard company. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to The Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello. Happy Friday. Welcome to The Hash. We're on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We're glad you're here. We're here to get you up to speed on today's news. I'm Zach Seward. That's Jen Sinassi. We have Adam B. Levine, and we are going to dive right in. I'm leading us off. Let's do this thing. New York AG Letitia James wants to expand her ability to rein in the crypto sector with a new bill that looks to enhance state regulators' power in regulating the crypto markets. A couple of features of this, including... Uh, requirements for crypto companies to make users whole in instances of fraud. Interesting stuff. Interesting that we've seen a lot from AG James over the last couple of years in the crypto space. And this certainly ramps that up, accelerates it a bit. A lot of good stuff to talk about here. I'm going to toss it straight to Jen for her thoughts. Yeah. You know, I read this article and I thought, like, shouldn't we expect this given what's happened in the industry over the past, I don't know, six months? So part of this says investors would be offered details of risk and conflicts of interest and crypto companies wouldn't be able to borrow or lend customer assets. The article cites claims about Luna and Celsius. I'm surprised there was no mention of FTX here. But I think if you listen to what she's saying, there are probably a lot of angry people who are reaching out to their regulators that are saying, I lost my money because they are used to, you know, banks making them whole when their money is lost. If their credit card is lost or stolen and someone spends money on that credit card, people are used to not being responsible for those funds. And so while we say so much that regulators need education, it's like, a really broad education that's needed, I think, to understand why lawmakers are sometimes responding in a way that we seem is very harsh to the industry. And so, you know, I'm usually like, ah, regulators, but I can understand. <laughs> I can understand why this is happening. You know, there are a few bad actors in the space or a few people who maybe made a few mistakes or mismanaged a few things that have made it really bad for a lot of people. And I know that I really support the speed towards mainstream adoption. But I think when it comes to regulation, slowing down a little bit and learning from the mistakes of the space and thinking thoughtfully 
on how to correct those mistakes is the way forward. Adam, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that we are typically pretty critical of regulators, but a lot of times that's because the regulators are doing stuff without making clear, without actually making new rules, right, that, that are tailored to the situation. And it seems like that's essentially what, uh, what, uh, what Attorney General James is doing here is she is putting forward proposed rules. Now, we can talk about whether or not we agree with the rules. We can talk about whether they're good ideas, but at least she's putting forward rules, and those standards are something that can actually be discussed rather than waiting for some type of implicit you know, uh, assumptions from the enforcement actions that come off of it. Now, one of the things that jumped out at me about this, uh, you know, outside of the refund thing, because that is interesting, and there are ways that you can prevent that as exchanges, but most of the time when people are losing money from exchanges, that's not a thing that the exchange did. It's that, you know, they got tricked by a fisher or, you know, they got their phone compromised and they had, you know, like uh, they were using their mobile phone for multi-factor authentication or something like that. These are pretty typical and they're not really the fault of the exchange, although exchanges can do things to prevent that. What jumped out at me, though, was the definition of stablecoin. Because effectively in this, there's a little note that says that any sort of regulated entity under these new rules would not be able to refer to anything as a stablecoin unless it was backed one to one, according to uh, sort of the state's rules, uh, you know, with either dollars or something like U.S. treasuries, which are effectively considered an equivalent to dollars. That's interesting because it has implications for DeFi and it has implications for really what U.S. exchanges. Again, keep in mind, this is New York, but but this could extend out to to kind of a broader standard if it's successful here, where really we're only talking about backed stable coins in contrast to the algorithmic or the many other types that are out there. Zach, what do you think about that one? Yeah, the AG's office, you know, that's a good point. I mean, they've gone out on a limb with several of these assertions, that being one of them, but also the assertion that ETH is a security in its action against KuCoin, right? That was a big one. That's something that I think, you know, hasn't even been broached specifically by Gary Gensler, though he was prodded in congressional testimony to give a clear answer on the matter. So in some respects, the New York Attorney General's office is charting sort of a new and perhaps more extreme course on reining in some of the assets within the ecosystem. I think that stands out to me as, you know, like really something that people in the industry can be alarmed about. But I think to Adam's point, right, like she's laying out her rationale. She's saying, here's the thing. We're dealing with all these people who are angry and mad, who want their money back. And we're trying to find ways to rein in the sector. Now, the thing that stood out to me from the announcement was that clearly in her eyes, cryptocurrency is a bad thing, right? These things are designed to, quote, end the fraud and dysfunction that have become the hallmarks of cryptocurrency, end quote. Not bad actors within cryptocurrency, not centralized exchanges that are doing shady things, legit just cryptocurrency, full stop, right? So I think there's like this image issue. And I think it kind of goes to what we were talking about yesterday with the CBDC bill in North Carolina that really these are kind of ideas or like imagined groups that people are pivoting off of to make political statements. Because in reality, a lot of these groups are rather small. But we have people who are saying, okay, the idea of CBDCs and this government boogeyman coming to surveil and crack down on your ability to spend freely, as spoken today by RFK Jr. actually on Twitter. And you have this idea on the other side, oh, crypto is awash in scams and fraud. I kind of see it as a sort of political cudgel on both sides where people are using this as a tool to make a statement, right? So the idea is actually more powerful than whether or not it's actually used or in existence in the, in the case of the digital dollar. So I, I, that, there's just really fascinating political dynamics going around crypto. And I've sort of been very bearish on the idea that crypto is going to be an issue in the 2024 presidential election. But I'm increasingly seeing that as likely being the case, even if the adoptions isn't there, even if the reality isn't there just yet. The idea of this thing as animating people to do things politically seems to be really gathering momentum as evidenced by some headlines in the past few weeks. Jen, I'm going to toss it to you for last thoughts on this one, though. 
I saw Adam's hand go up, so I'm going to give it to him because I know he probably has a spicy last thought for us. I mean, you know, I, I think that's all really right on. I think you're right. This is a battle of narratives much more than it is a battle of reality. And I think that, that kind of beyond that one narrative that I would kind of toss into the hopper here, of course, is that we're talking about New York. And so when you're talking about New York, you're also talking about, again, Wall Street, sort of the money center of the world and the power center, you know, of, of much of uh, the U.S. And so, again, whenever you look at these things and you see and you see compliance requirements that are strangely like what banks would have to comply with as banks, what you're seeing is an opportunity that's being presented to those banks and one where effectively the drawbridge might be getting pulled up. Uh, again, you know, you look at Paxos, you know, and kind of the challenges that they've had issuing their stable coins, even as they do seem to have been solvent and not actually having broken any rules. Well, I bet you that there's a lot of banks out there that would like Paxos's business. And so if you can create rules like this and you can kind of put that type of thing into play, then you can create these situations where the powerful can remain powerful. And New York historically has been very, very good at doing that. But I think we can move on to our next story. So next up, the cost of transacting on the Bitcoin network is on the rise with fees as high as they've been since July of 2021. Right now, the average is above $7. That's apparently because at least some folks didn't get the memo that Bitcoin is only for money, at uh, <laughs> least according to some prominent advocates and developers, although it's a little bit more complex in practice. This year, we've seen a renewed focus on uh, Bitcoin non-currency use cases, specifically collectible tokens like NFTs and essentially ERC-20 fungible token equivalents now. And of course, this isn't the first time that tokens built on top of Bitcoin have been in focus when they are not currency. Way back in 2014, I started building infrastructure with a number of other people for exactly these types of use cases. And in 2017, while preparing to launch what would have been the first tokenized streaming music platform at the time, I saw transaction fees go as high as $30, which sort of killed the idea for me that you could use the Bitcoin base layer for really anything other than very high value non-currency use cases. So it all feels like a bit of history repeating to me, but there you go. Zach, what do you think about this one? You are old, sir. That's what I think about this. <laughs> you true. have I'm seen old. the evolution Zach's of this calling industry. calling Adam old. Wait you, one sir, moment. We amazing, need to just take amazing. that in. Usually I am the one who is called old, so I'm just taking this opportunity to call <laughs> you old, Adam. But no, it is fantastic that you have that historical perspective because I think a lot of people are looking at this chart and saying, whoa, like this is crazy. People are actually doing stuff with a Bitcoin blockchain. This isn't just a pet rock that sits in my brokerage account and moves in value up and down. And that's why I use Bitcoin for. No, we're seeing people actually building on Bitcoin and it's become rather controversial, right? First, it was ordinals, which gave like NFT like functionality to the Bitcoin blockchain. Now it's this BRC20 thing which may or may not just be a comment on the entirety of the ecosystem, right? But yeah, it's S-coin season and it's coming to the Bitcoin blockchain and you're seeing fees respond accordingly. I think it's great that we're seeing fees. That means people are actually using the thing. It's something that I think Bitcoin has struggled with in the past as it's been seen as this old stodgy thing that doesn't do much besides you know, store value and transact money globally, which is a fantastic thing. Bitcoin is an amazing, fantastic system for doing this. It's the OG, it's the godfather of everything that we're talking about now. And now all of a sudden there's this technical functionality that's coming to the chain that is different from what people had been attached to with Bitcoin. And we're seeing people use the thing, despite all the controversy around whether or not it should be used in this way and whether or not people should be able to prescribe how it should be used. So it's really a fascinating time for Bitcoin. I think the Bitcoin Miami conference coming up could be a really interesting sort of touch point for a lot of these conversations. I'm very curious to see how that goes. But Jen, I'll toss it to you. Imagine the Bitcoin Miami people talking about NFTs. I just can't wait. I read the story and I was like, see what NFTs do to your chain. 
It reminded me of a conversation we were having at Consensus last week about the resurgence of Bitcoin. And so, Zach, my sentiment is very similar to yours. People are using Bitcoin. I think that it's great. I think that it's great that it's being used for different things and that, you know, it's not just the Bitcoin maxis who get a say or who get to define that. You know, anyone can define what's happening on Bitcoin. And so I think that that's great. Zach, I'm going to give it back to you for uh, last thoughts because I was going to ask Adam, a historical question on like whether or not you think this is this is good, but you're smiling, so it seems like you have a spicy take. <laughs> I still just shiver. I still just shiver at the thought of of these meme coins on on Bitcoin. I don't know. I just it, it just triggers me somehow. But anyway, Adam, Anxiety. you definitely get the last word on this one. So Jen, I toss it back to you for your question and some historical perspective. Well, I just want, I want to know from a historical perspective, Adam, what do you make of this? Is this just like a little bit of hype around these, these projects that are on the Bitcoin chain and then that's going to die down and we're just going to like, like, is this something that's sustainable? I guess is what my question is. I mean, mania is sustainable for extended periods of time. This is true. I think that what we're looking at right now is really a combination of two factors. On the one side, these are use cases that are quite interesting. And there's always this, this magnetic attraction to a certain type of person when something new comes out and it's kind of like edgy and you have the opportunity to go in and do something, you know, and collect one of the first 10,000 of these things, right? Like the collectible scene collects all kinds of silly things. So that's one element that's drawing people in here. That's just different from, uh, you know, past generations because that happened in past generations, lasted six months, maybe a year, and then it kind of drifts off because you get past that part. And it's like, well, what are we actually doing here? The other part, of course, is that people are telling them that they're not allowed to do this and they're doing it in a way that's coming off as a bit orthodox, sanctimonious, and frankly, which can't be enforced. And again, if there's one thing that as a contrarian, I love. It's if somebody tells me I can't do a thing and I'm like, yeah, but you can't stop me from doing that thing, then I'm probably going to do that thing, at least just to prove to them how impotent their sort of desire is in practice. So I think it's a combination of all those factors. There's certainly more stuff going on here. And this might turn into something really big, but at least for the moment, that's what it feels like to me. Is identifying and mitigating crypto risk a challenge? Do you need help balancing compliance issues with the need to protect against fraud? CypherTrace, a MasterCard company, can help. They work with banks, governments, regulators, exchanges, and other crypto entities to identify risk, trace the movement of crypto funds, and help comply with global regulations. Visit CypherTrace.com today for more information. We got to talk about what's going on in the DAO space. So a judge has upheld the $35 million freeze on Spartacus DAO in a lawsuit served via Discord. So Spartacus DAO is an investment project whose leader is facing a lawsuit from disgruntled investors in its token. The judge said that the order will remain in place until the founder, who has been a no-show to uh, apparently all of the hearings, starts to work with the court. So the funds are frozen. I don't know how they've done that if they're being held on chain. And this alleged founder is being forced to work with the court. Zach, tossing this off to you. What do you make about this? I mean, this was interesting to me because it's another DAO being served on Discord. There's been some kind of back and forth about, you know, whether or not it's possible to serve someone or an entity on social media. What do you think? I think this is great reporting. I think this is a snapshot of a lot of DAO dysfunction that is occurring across the space, right? Everyone has these ideas. We're going to spin up a DAO. We're going to make a, you know, a yield farming operation. It's going to be great. And we're going to govern it collectively. And it's all going to go really, really great. And oftentimes these dissolve, they just fade away into the ether. Sometimes they lead to contention and fights like we're seeing here, right? 
And so I think this is a great piece of reporting by Danny Nelson because he's basically like lurking the city hall of this very tiny village in Web3 land. And all this stuff is public, right? It's on Discord. It's in there. It's easy to find. You can cross check it against blockchain records. It's a fun little piece of reporting in terms of just taking a snapshot of a DAO, not a prominent DAO by any stretch of the imagination, but taking a snapshot of a DAO intersecting with real world legal frameworks and there being quite a bit of friction in finding resolution for people who are aggrieved, right? And so I think this is a snapshot and a representative detail of things that are happening in the DAO space now and things that are going to happen probably probably with increasing frequency as DAOs become a bigger and bigger part of organizing communities online. So that to me is what this is, lurking the halls of this tiny village, town hall, and seeing what's going on, warts and all. And this is what that piece is really about. Yeah, I think that's right on, Zach. I think, again, you know, like a lot of the, there are a lot of advantages that will eventually come sort of to the world from DAOs that are really functional when there are standards in place and where people understand what kind of behavior is expected. And therefore, we can look at things and be like, well, that's weird. Because right now, you look at a DAO and no matter how they're structured, it's like, yeah, that's weird. And you look at the projects that are out there trying to create their own sort of protocols for how DAOs should behave. And it's kind of like, you know, uh, XKCD uh, comic about, you know, how, oh, hey, we need a standard, you know, now there's 11 standards as opposed to 10 before you decided that you needed a standard. So like, that's kind of the world as it stands right now. You know, one of the other things that's about that's interesting about this is that there are allegations in here effectively that this is masquerading effectively as a DAO, but in reality is centrally controlled by this one particular party. Again, like that's another huge thing that exists both for good reasons and for bad reasons, right? The bad reason is if somebody's doing something you don't want with it, the good reason is, hey, nobody can you know, find an exploit in your smart contract and drain all of your tokens, right? So I have a lot of sympathy for people who are trying these new things, but the kind of Wild West extreme nature of it does open up sort of vulnerabilities like this. And it's not surprising to see this. I completely agree. We will see plenty more examples of this stuff going to court before we even really understand how DAOs can successfully operate. Jen? Yeah, this reminds me of when we were talking about all the rug pulls in the NFT space. And if this alleged founder is indeed a bad actor, how do you evaluate what DAO community you're going to join? And how do you evaluate if it is a real DAO community whose intentions are true? And how do you put your trust in these pseudonymous or anonymous characters? And so I think that if anyone is considering joining a DAO, you should think about all of these things instead of investing money into a token and thinking that you have all of this decision-making power when maybe actually you don't really. You know, some of the most effective DAOs I've seen operating in the space right now have really centralized components, like critical components, because that's just the only way that they can operate in the real world. It's the only way they can employ people to actually function in the DAO. It's the only way they can do real world things. And so I just caution people who are, who are joining DAOs to really look into what you're joining and don't FOMO in. That's been the theme of this week for me, Zach. Yeah, be a good citizen online <laughs> and IRL. All right, we're changing gears. We're going to welcome to the show a guest, CEO and chairman of MeWe, Jeffrey Edel. Jeffrey, how are you today? I'm great. How are you guys? Jen, love we're your toys in the background there. That's pretty cool. Thank you very much. No one appreciates it enough, so I thank you. That, that was nice. That was a nice shout out. Happy Friday to you. What do you have behind you? You have I can't quite make out uh, the decorations. What do you what, what do you got? Well, I guess some of this is from my Hollywood background and some of it's just uh, the collectible stuff that you guys referred to earlier. So everything from the baseball, Spider-Man, everything on the right side. I'm not sure which way you're looking all the way to other characters involved in the universe. I'm a big comic collector and Stan Lee fan. And that's what I play. That's the game I play with. 
Nice. Well, I definitely want to get to the evolution of the entertainment industry into Web3. But first, I want to start with MeWe. Definitely seems like the time is right for decentralized social media experiments. Can you just introduce us to what you're trying to do and why MeWe is different? Sure. So about uh, oh, a year and a half ago or so, I was just, it was a Hollywood story reading the paper online. And I found this thing called Project Liberty that Frank McCourt was working on. And uh, what Frank did was he came up with a new idea about a social web. And so what we did was we partnered with him to help create a new experience on the social web. And it involves technology, it involves governance, and it involves an amazing experience that really doubles down on privacy to protect our users. So I want to talk about your history in the social media realm. You've really been operating in this since before social media was a thing. I know MeWe became popular after the 2020 presidential election as an alternative to mainstream platforms, largely due to censorship and content moderation on the more mainstream platforms. Is there a place for content moderation in social media as we move towards a more Web3 future? Well, when you say I've been in it for a while, the interesting thing is that I really have been in it for a while. I was there at the birth of social media with the MySpace world. And what we did was I just looked at things literally 15, 20 years later. That's why I have gray hair and had a chance to come back into the space and try to do it again the right way. I didn't like the way things were going with big tech centralized control of data and information. Really, information and data and social graph should be in the hands of the user itself. And that's what MeWe is all about. We have fantastic people that we're associated with working on the McCourt side, the Project Liberty side, and the McCourt Institute that will be dealing with the moderation aspects of things. You know, today, it doesn't work well in our Web 2 world, and certainly we're going to try to address it in the Web 3 world. Obviously, we talk a lot about kind of collectible tokens, and this is something that has been, I think, uh, there have been a number of assumptions that there would be significant overlap eventually sort of with the world of mass media production. I think we're starting to see that, but perhaps a little bit slower than a lot of people have expected. So, I mean, what's your kind of read on the connection or the value that Web3 can offer, or is it really just like a talking point at this moment? Well, the interesting thing is, is if you would go to some of the entertainment conferences, and of course, I spanned a combination of Hollywood and there, you'd see some of these things coming into place very early and the Hollywood people scratching their head because it's very traditional. But from a content creator perspective, blockchain really affords a lot of opportunity for control and ownership of your own concept, your own content rather, and be able to leverage that content to actually through smart contracts, so that is very critical to the future. And we want to combine Hollywood and MeWe in turn to have a Hollywood experience on MeWe, a more proactive experience versus just a technology usage. I think we hear a lot from the content creator side. And I always wonder if some of the hesitation for you know this sort of concept to take off is really from the user side, right? Where there's a lot of hurdles to participating and getting that heightened level of fan engagement that a lot of creators are seeking to accomplish with NFTs and other blockchain-powered fun things. What do you think is like the corollary on the consumer side that makes Web3 entertainment compelling? Well, I have a few things. So first off is I think the Web3 world has just been so bound to everything, DeFi, Bitcoin, et cetera, that mainstream people don't even understand what it is. I come from a Hollywood world myself. MeWe has 600,000 groups. And we are working on ways to figure out how to monetize those groups and get them and their content that they create 
to the forefront. And everything we're about is to help them share in the benefit and the upside of that. So that is what we're trying to do over here at MeWe. We're a platform that's been around since 2012 and uh, no ads, no algorithms, no amplification. And I think that's really critical. I have been super all in on kind of the AI moment that we've been seeing over the course of the last two years or so. And things have really amped up, obviously, over the last, let's call it nine months at this point. We're seeing major disruptions on the tech side. We've seen major disruptions on the image side. And what's coming next, it seems like, is video. And the video stuff that's coming out is still nascent, but it's pretty cool. And it's a pretty massive kind of realignment. I'm super curious for your thoughts on that and sort of, is this something Hollywood's going to embrace? Are they going to fight it? How do you see this moving forward? Well, interesting. I mean, you know, besides the business world where AI is just going to take jobs from people, it's pretty scary that it's going to get out of control. But AI sitting in a social media world in today's environment is very scary. I mean, just look at how big tech in the centralized world of how people control it and make decisions, how they capture your brain. They know exactly where to push you and the things that they want you to do and behave. Uh, that is really scary. And so I think what AI does, it just pushes us more into this world of Web3 where we can then put the control back into the user's hands. We're coming up with universal handles to navigate Web3 through Polkadot and through the frequency network. You're going to have your own social graph. Come to MeWe, get your cool new handle, control your social graph. We'll help you monetize it yourself. AI is a scary but exciting thing. And again, if it exists more in the Web2 world, I think you have to come over to Web3. All right, Jeffrey. Well, thank you so much. That was Jeffrey Edel. He is the CEO of MeWe. That is it for the show today. That is it for the show for this week. We'll see you on Monday. I'm Zach. That's Jen. That's Adam. Have a great weekend. Talk to you soon. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 